Good afternoon on this great Canadian long weekend, and uh, welcome to Ring Talk. I'm your host, Lou Eisen. And I, first of all, before I do anything, I just want to say thank you. Uh, every week you see the show, and the, and the only reason it looks good uh, is because of Eric Boyce, the producer, and his wonderful father, Graham, who gave me this forum. So I, I, I haven't thanked them on air before, but that's that's incorrect of me and remiss of me to not do that. So I just want to thank them profusely because you may be boxing fans, but you're not boxing fans like they're boxing fans. They know boxing and they love it. I'm not saying you don't, but I'm going to start another controversy. But uh, I just want to say thank you to them. Today we're going to discuss what I consider and what many boxing historians consider uh, to be the single most controversial fight in the entire history of professional boxing. And that is the fight between, uh, the rematch between uh, Gene Tunney, who was the world champion, and challenger Jack Dempsey, the former champion. This took place September 22nd, 1927. Now, when people think of the 20s or the late 20s, you think of, of the Great Depression. That's two years off. This is in the middle of the Roaring Twenties, a jazz age, and people are making millions of dollars off the stock market. Jack Dempsey is making, uh, has made a lot of money boxing, and Calvin Coolidge is the president. Mackenzie King is the prime minister in Canada, and uh, Calvin Coolidge, you know, the country's going well, and Everyone in the movie industry is doing well. Jack Dempsey is doing movies. And this Dempsey had not fought since 1923. So he has to fight in 1926 in Philadelphia uh, against Gene Tooney. His first fight in three years. And no one wanted to fight him. And why did Dempsey want to fight? He didn't. After he beats Furpo in 1923, the hunger is gone. It's extinguished in him. He wanted to be the best heavyweight on earth. He was. He beat everyone. There was no one else for him to fight. The Dempsey fight with Furpo, they had to promote Furpo. No one knew who Furpo was in the United States. And the fight with George Carpentier was such a mismatch that they had to make it, you know, they had to promote it from the sense of Carpentier versus Dempsey. Carpentier was a decorated World War I flying ace, a hero, and Dempsey they considered a slacker. Because he didn't, he he got a deferment from serving in World War One to to help his family financially. He wasn't a slacker, but it made good press. Um, after the Furpo fight, before the fight, first fight with Gene Tunney, uh, New York State Boxing Commission or Athletic Commission, the most powerful in the world at that time, still very powerful, says to Dempsey and to his manager Jack Doc Kearns, "You can't fight in New York again." Unless you fight uh, Harry Wills, the Black Panther, black fighter, African American, six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds. He'd fought because of his color. You know, he'd suffered racism. So Wills had to do what a lot of other great African American fighters had to do. They had to fight other great black fighters: uh, Joe Jeanette, Sam McVeigh, the Canadian Sam Langford, who was the greatest fighter to never win a world title. And they each ended up fighting each other 30, 40 times. So Wills was a big man. And they had a big press conference, and they signed to fight. Kearns had no intention of letting Dempsey fight a black man. 
at that time. He just and, and I don't think it was necessarily because Kearns or was was racist because he later managed Archie Moore and is very close with Archie Moore. I think it's because he just didn't want to take a chance. He wasn't in control of it. He didn't want to take a chance. Tex Ricker would have controlled it. Ricker didn't want to fight because after the Jack Johnson, James Jeffries fight and the thousands of riots all through the United States where lots of people were killed, black and white, they just didn't want to have to go through this again. So Dempsey really did want to fight Wills. He was willing to. He wasn't a bigot. He said he would fight him, and they never fought. People often ask, well, how do you think that fight would have turned out? We'll never know because in boxing, unlike a lot of people online uh, on their Facebook pages or their fan pages, which is great because anytime as Angela Dundee said you're talking about boxing, it's a great thing. But this guy would have beaten this guy, and this guy from the 20s would have beaten this guy from the 70s. and We don't know. It, it's all speculation. I tend to think Dempsey would have beaten Wills because Dempsey – did magnificently against guys that were physically much taller. Dempsey was 6'1", Wills was 6'4", and Dempsey just destroyed people that were that tall. So, 1923, he's not fighting. Three years go by, he's in Hollywood with his wife, um, and and he, he starts, Estelle Taylor, he starts making all these terrible films, hanging out with Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks, the movie stars, and gets a nose job to fix his nose. He's not fighting. He's eating well every day. This is a far cry from the Dempsey who had to ride the rods under trains, who lived in hobo villages, who would walk to fights 40 to 50 miles because he had no money for transportation. Dempsey on the way up was fighting two, three, four times a month against good guys. Now he was enjoying the life of a successful man. He's achieved it all. I'm the best heavyweight on the planet, probably the best ever. Why on earth would I want to get back in the ring? And anyone that's suggested, they're not going to draw. There's no real credible opponent. And out of nowhere, not out of nowhere, but from the light heavyweight ranks comes six-foot Gene Tunney. Tunney had followed Dempsey's career. They were friends. They had met before. Tunney said he never forgot. He never forgot. When he was starting out, Dempsey was already, you know, top fighter, champion, the champion by then, talking to Dempsey on a, on, on a boat once. And he just never forgot how how kind and generous Dempsey was and how Dempsey listened, listened to him and offered him thoughtful advice. But he'd followed Dempsey. And Tiny, you know, had several advantages. He's very analytical, great fighter. He'd only lost once. In fact, he only ever lost once in his whole career. And that was to Harry Greb, the great middleweight uh, world champion and great American light heavyweight champion. Greb was a force in nature. In fact, uh, I was told by my late friend Steve Lott, uh, for all you fans out there watching, um, if you want to make a quick five, six million dollars, then go to your grandparents' house, go to university basements, look for a film of Harry Greb because you will make a fortune if you find it. There is, films were taken of them. There's none in existence. There is some in existence. We just have never found Greb beat up Tunney really bad, put him in the hospital, ruptured his spleen, lacerated his kidney, broke his nose, broke a cheekbone, knocked teeth out. And while lying in the hospital recuperating, Tunney told his manager, Billy Gibson, who also managed the great lightweight world champion, Benny Leonard, 
said to him, uh, well, we'll look, you know, if, if you get better, we'll see what we can do. And Tony said, no, no, I want to fight him again. And Gibson said, no, if you fight him again, I'm gone because he'll kill you. You know, you almost died this fight. I'm not going to take that chance again. But Tony got a copy of the film, or that, which we don't have, unfortunately, and watched it and, and analyzed it. And then he fought Greb four more times and beat him convincingly. And so Tani's moving up the ladder. He's beating light heavyweights. He's the you know great light heavyweight fighter. And then he's not the light heavyweight champion. It's just a great light heavyweight. He's beating guys. Moves up to heavyweight. Why? Because as people have always said in boxing for 300 years, because that's where the money is. So he moves up to heavyweight and he starts convincingly beating heavyweights. Tani's style... Tony was not as quick as Muhammad Ali, but he had a similar style. Tony would dance around the ring. He learned this when he was part of the Army Expeditionary Force. That was another factor in making the fight so big because Tony had served in World War I. He'd gone to Europe. He never saw action, but he was known as the fighting Marine. So Tony had learned uh, while in the Army how to fight backing up. So all these guys who would come at him, Tony was as, as effective backing up, which is rare as he was going forward. And so he did that. And when he became a heavyweight, he had no problem beating the heavyweights. Heavyweights were about his size. He was six feet, Dempsey was six one. But, you know, a lot of the heavyweights were just basically walk-ahead sluggers, walk-in sluggers. And Tani had no problem being a smart fighter, a scientific fighter, eluding their charges and lunges and punches and beating them to a pulp. So by 1926, Tani is the number one challenger for Dempsey's crown. And they agree to fight in Philadelphia. And Dempsey hasn't fought in three years. So, you know, you look at Ali coming back after four years. Dempsey had a good training camp, but he, he's not the Dempsey of before. He's not the 24-year-old hungry, feral monster that destroyed Jess Willard. Right? This is 1926. This is seven years later. This is the 31-year-old Dempsey who's happy and content and married. His manager didn't want him to be married because he thought it took away some of his edge. It probably did. All this success, he thought, why bother fighting anymore? I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. So he fights Tony, and it's a washout. It's literally a washout. It's raining. There's no canopy, so it's raining during the whole fight. And... Tony wins every round. Dempsey's exhausted after four or five rounds. And Tony is just beating the hell out of him. And when the fight's over, Dempsey, for the first time in his career, heard something he'd never heard before. Cheers. The fans are standing up cheering him and yelling, I love you, Jack. And they're hugging him and they're kissing him. And the reason was he was so gracious and diplomatic in defeat that it really took the fans, it stole their hearts. You know, and after, when he was being interviewed on the radio, he said, listen, I got beat by a better man. The better man won, he was the better man by far, and I'm happy for him, and, and uh, he's a great champion. And not all fighters did that back then. They certainly don't do it today. And the famous line, of course, is, you know, his eyes were swollen, practically shut, and when his wife Estelle asked Dempsey what happened, and he said, I forgot the duck. What happened was Dempsey was 
his reflexes were gone. He couldn't get out of the way of the punches anymore. He didn't have the strength to bull his way inside. His hand speed wasn't what it used to be. But the fight made over a million dollars. It was one of the highest grossing fights ever. And Tex Rickard, his manager, wanted to do it again. The only problem with having the rematch of Jack, with Gene Tooney, Jack Tooney was actually a relative of Gene Tooney's, lives in Toronto, was a wrestling and boxing promoter, beside the point. The only problem with having a rematch of Gene Tooney was he won every round against Dempsey so overwhelmingly that Rickard feared no one's, no one's going to come. I mean, it wasn't competitive at all. So Dempsey has to have a fight to look good in order to earn his rematch with Gene Tunney. Little coffee there for fuel. And what happens is he fights Jack Sharkey, the Boston Gob, the future world heavyweight champion. Sharkey uh, won the world title and, of course, in the famous fight, lost it against Max Schmeling when he hit him low. And then won it again, and then lost it to to um, Primo Carnera in a fixed fight. What she wouldn't admit was a fixed fight. Sharkey only admitted it after the last guy that was alive then died, and this was a year or two before Sharkey had died in the '80s. And then he admitted it was a fixed fight. He just said it simply wasn't safe for me to admit it before. So he has to fight Sharky. Sharky's young and he's good and he's big, 6'2", 6'3", and he knows how to fight. He's he's emotionally temperamental, but he doesn't dislike Jack Dempsey, but he's looking at him thinking, boy, am I going to beat the crap out of you? You are old and you cannot fight any longer. And they have the fight and Sharky is hurting Dempsey in every round. And after each round, Dempsey comes back to his corner and says, I... I, I can't believe he hasn't knocked me out yet. And he's pounding Dempsey. And Dempsey is just clinching. He's holding on for dear life. He, Dempsey realizes, you know, I've got to stop going for the head and just destroy his body. And he keeps going for the body. But Sharky is beating him up. He's bleeding from the nose and the mouth. He's got cuts under his eyes. His eyes are swelling. And everyone there is thinking, well, this fight's not going to go six, seven rounds. And it shouldn't have. But Dempsey, through his incredible force of strength and character is lasting. In the seventh round, Dempsey hits Sharkey a hard left hook. It's a borderline punch. And Sharkey breaks the cardinal rule in boxing, which you don't even have to know boxing to know the phrase, protect yourself at all times. So it's a borderline shot. But Sharkey actually holds his hand out to Dempsey and says, wait. He says, wait, turns to the ref, he hit me low. And while he turns, Dempsey hits him with a left hook, drops him out on the canvas. He's out, holding his groin in agony, but as he's, as he's writhing on the canvas. And after the fight, the referee said, I never officially stopped the fight. I never warned Dempsey. I didn't think it was a low blow. There was no reason for Sharky to stop fighting and turn to me. It wasn't my fault. And Sharkey said he should, he, Dempsey still should not have done it. And Dempsey's reply was classic. He said, what was I supposed to do? And wait for, uh, wait for a, an engraved invitation from Jack Sharkey to punch him again? You protect yourself at all times. It's boxing. Referee didn't call it low. So he knocked Sharkey out. And no one talks about the controversy. They just, in the paper the next day, 
Dempsey, Isis, Sharky, and Seven. So the fight with Gene Tunney is on. And they have the fight in Philadelphia. Now, here's something uh, that I learned a long time ago, and I was surprised to learn. And this is in Roger Kahn's magnificent book, A Flame of Pure Fire. It's about the life and times of Jack Dempsey. Uh, when people think of the mafia, which was involved in this second Dempsey-Tunney fight, they think of boxing in the 50s. Mob control of boxing went back way, way further than that. I've documented the first, the first, it's not the first fixed fight, but the first fight that we can categorically say without a doubt was fixed back to 1780 in Britain, where gamblers got involved and paid one fighter to deliberately lose. It probably happened 30, 40, 50 years earlier, but was never uh, categorically proven. So we go to Philadelphia, and the referee is supposed to be Dave Miller. This is uh, going to be a contest of referees named Dave. And Dave Miller was a friend of Al Capone's. Capone loved Jack Dempsey and went to Dempsey and said, if you want, I'm happy to pay the money and fix it so you win the fight. And Dempsey thanked him, and he knew how dangerous he was, and, and graciously said, that's nice of you, but I want to win it on my own accord. Now, Capone was one of the most powerful gangsters, if not the most powerful, in the United States. However, the one who ran boxing was in New York, and his name was Oni the Killer Madden. And Oni Madden was from Britain. Oni Madden had, had uh, grown up in England, he was Irish, beside Pops Foster, who ended up being Jimmy McLarnan's manager. So when McLarnan and his manager, Pop Foster, started on the West Coast, they came to New York to get Madden's permission, you know, to fight in New York. And Madden said, sure. And, and you know, they're ready to sign over a piece of McLaren because you had to to Madden. But Madden said no. And it's the only fighter ever that we think that and that he didn't take a piece of, although he had tremendous control over his career. Um, I could get into a whole other thing about that with the Barney Ross fights, and we will another time. So the problem here is we have only Madden's controlling the fight. Al Capone wants Dempsey to win. In Philadelphia, um, the mobster Boo Boo Hoff had lent Max Boo Boo Hoff had lent a lot of money, hundreds of thousands, to Gene Tunney to have the second fight because his manager Billy Kip Gibson needed the money for training camp, for sparring partners, and to help with the promotion. He just didn't have the money, and no one else in Philly did. So they went to Boo Boo Hoff. And Hoff thought, well, you know, I want Tunney to win. It's my money's on the line. I want my referee, Dave Barry. Dave Barry, who did referee the fight, was a mob ref. And he was into the mob for a lot of money for gambling. Not a wise thing to do. So he did a lot of odd jobs for them. And he refereed fights for Boo Boo Hoff. And he did what Boo Boo Hoff said. That colors what happens in their second fight, the famous battle of the long count. Now, Boo Boo Hoff himself and the Philadelphia mob didn't really have the requisite firepower or pull to back off an Al Capone. 
Oni Madden did. So they had to go through Oni Madden as an intermediary and say to Capone, listen, uh, this is the way it's going to go. We don't want Dave Miller, the ref. We want our own guy, Dave Barry. And Capone agreed. But of course, Capone had to be paid somewhere in between and $500,000. He just wasn't going to walk away. And just because he accepted the money didn't mean he wasn't still going to try to interfere. The irony, of course, is the fight wasn't held in Philadelphia. It was held in Chicago, which was Capone's um, base of operations. The thing that people have to understand when you talk about Capone betting on the fight and only Madden betting on a fight and Boo Boo Hoff and Frankie Carvel years later and all these other mobsters, no mobster, no gangster, no mafia member ever once bet on a professional boxing fight because that would imply the element of chance, of risk. They only put their money on outcomes that were predetermined. They knew what was going to happen. So in that, in that view, in that strict angle of looking at it, it does affect the outcome of the second fight. Dempsey, by this point, after having fought Tony the first time and fighting him, fighting Jack Sharkey and having a long training camp, he was in shape now. And he had to figure out a way how to get to Tony because Tony kept moving backwards all the time. And he was so quick and he kept circling Dempsey. And this was the right way to fight Dempsey. Keep turning him. If you keep turning him, he can't set his feet. You're forcing Dempsey to, to punch on the run, which you can do. It's not easy to do, but he can do it. He just doesn't want to do it. You'd rather set his feet. Dempsey and Tony actually had a lot of things in common. They both came from hard scrabble backgrounds. Um, both grew up poor. Both had a brother that was murdered. And they didn't dislike each other. They were friends. Before both fights, you see them cross the ring and shake hands. And But before the second fight, Dempsey had made allegations in the paper that the fight could possibly be decided by the mob and that Tony had mob um, affiliation, which he did. Tony shouted back or said in the paper that, you know, it's not true. Dempsey's old and he's scared and he thinks he's going to lose again. And it was all, part of it was true. Part of them felt that way, but it was really built up out of proportion by the press. Dempsey said for years later, uh, years later, he said that he was told before he got in the ring that day that uh, a mob person had approached him and said, you're not going to win tonight. I don't know if that's true. That's never been proven one way or the other. People that I've spoken to, like Burt Randolph Sugar and Hank Kaplan, you know, boxing's premier historians, uh, um, all just said it may or may not have happened. We just don't have a way of knowing for sure. So we get to the fight. This is the fight. They get into the ring in Chicago at Soldier's Field. And the fight takes, it's supposed to take a similar turn. Dempsey's in his corner before the fight starts, and he's thinking, okay, I got to conserve my energy. I got to cut the ring off on him. I can't keep moving 10 steps to every several steps he takes. I got to shorten what I do, and I got to get inside. And the bell rings, and Dempsey's shocked. Tunney's not running. He doesn't want to run. He comes right at Dempsey and starts firing away. He's not running. He's not backpedaling now. Now 
Now Tony wants to show that I'm the champion, I'm the tougher guy, and he's he's whacking Dempsey. He's going after him first round, second round, third round, fourth round, about a minute to go. He gets him on the far ropes, hits Dempsey with a huge right hand on the jaw, and Dempsey's knees buckle. He's wobbled, and the ropes held him up. Dempsey smartly clinches. But from the fourth round on, you know, fifth round, sixth round, Dempsey picks it up and he starts getting closer and closer to Tunney. He starts, he's taller than him, but he's fighting from an exaggerated crouch. So he starts leaning into Tunney and he starts savaging his body, left hooks to the liver, you know, right hands to the body. And then he's bringing it upstairs and he's, he figures, I'm not going to get his head. So he's just hitting him in the shoulder, hitting him in the heart, using his elbows, his shoulders. And Dempsey had a habit, which Tyson, um, adopted Dempsey and Roberto Duran did this too against Kenny Buchanan. Tony would get under Dempsey in a crouch and then stand up and use his head to push Tony's head up. So when he's pushing Tony's head up, Dempsey then takes a half inch step backwards and hits him with a shot. You're not supposed to use your head to do that, but Dempsey knew all those tricks. He was trained by one of the greatest trainers of all time, the magnificent Jimmy DeForest. So he knew what he was doing. Before the fight, Billy Gibson had his all-time great champion who'd retired by then, Benny Leonard, and Harry Greb get in the ring and show him how to fight Dempsey. He did this actually before the first fight and how, how to maneuver Dempsey. And Tony was a master like Ali was and Jack Johnson at using a fighter's own momentum against him. He would draw a guy in, pretend he had an opening, you know, open himself up to make the other guy think, you know, he had a shot at hitting him. And right when he lunged in and Dempsey liked to lunge in, whack him with the right hand. But Dempsey, or excuse me, Tony eschewed all that during this fight. He just kept coming at Dempsey, pounding him. So in the fifth round, Dempsey starts to turn it around. He has a better round. Sixth round is a better round. But as Dempsey is waiting in his corner before the seventh round, it's only a 10-round fight. First fight was 10 rounds. Dempsey has the ironic problem that afflicts all boxers. And it happened to one of the boxers I loved the most last night, David Lemieux. You know, young young man, but an old fighter. Dempsey had been in a lot of wars, over, you know, almost 60 wars or 62 wars in the ring. He had hard fights. So Dempsey at that point realized, you know, this is the seventh round. I probably have lost five of the first six rounds, if not all of them. I have to do something. I can't win on points. And so the fight, the, the round begins, and Dempsey is smart because he, he realizes Tony is just moving to his right hand, moving to his left, away from my left hook. That was Dempsey's best punch. And so he faked a left. He just twinged his shoulder. Tony moved to the right. It's the same thing George Foreman did with Michael Moore. And as he moved, Tony threw a jab, which Dempsey slipped and countered with an overhand right hand. And it was solid. It hit Tony square on the chin and sort of held him in place for a moment. Against Dempsey, you could lose your life when that happened. Dempsey realized the opportunity, leaped in with a leaping left hook and hit him again. And crushing shot, Tony staggers back to the ropes. Dempsey hits him in right hand. Tunney's arms go down. And Dempsey's eyes get as wide as the moon. 
he hits him seven shots, clear shots in a row. Tunney's hands are down. And Tunney hits the canvas. He's down. Now, if you go on YouTube, you can watch you can watch the great champions, which was an award-winning Academy Award-winning documentary from 1967, done by Mike Jacobs, excuse me, done by Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton, who who managed Mike Tyson. They own the largest collection of fight films. So Tony hits the canvas. The referee should be counting. He doesn't. Why doesn't he count? Because Dempsey won't go to a neutral corner. Tunney is sitting on the canvas in the middle of the ropes, right beside the middle of the ropes, in between both in between the corners. Dempsey is about three or four feet away. He can't do that. And Dempsey knew that, not because he was told in the dressing room before the fight, and, and not because the referee told him in the ring either. This was a rule that was in place already but for four years. It was because of Dempsey. It's because when he knocked out um, Jess or uh, Angel Furpo, Luis Angel Furpo, he stood over him. And the minute he got up, he hit him. And boxing, he said, we can't do this. This is losing us fans. This isn't a fight. This is a massacre. This is a bully. We, we have to make it equitable and more palatable for the fans. We have to have a guy go to the neutral corner and at least let the guy try to regain his senses. Dempsey wouldn't do that. But... The minute Tunney's second knee hits the canvas, the minute he's down, the official townkeeper starts to stopwatch. And he's got his hand up. One, two, three, four. He's counting. But the referee hasn't started counting yet. Finally, Dempsey, who lost his cool in the moment, and it was his moment. This was it. This would have sealed him as the greatest fighter of all time. Finally goes to a neutral corner. And the referee, Dave Barry, the mob ref, instead of picking up the count from the timekeeper and pointing over here like he's actually here, instead of picking up the count from the timekeeper, which he's supposed to do, he starts at one. So he's saying one, two. He's giving him a slow count. That's why they call it the long count, one of the reasons. Three. And by the time he gets to nine, Tunney's been down for 14 seconds. Tunney gets off the canvas and lasts out the round. He gets on his bicycle. Now, the next round, and I spoke to people about this at the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Historians, I'm 61. These guys are 25 years older than me. They said... You know, the minute, and you can see it on the film, the minute Tunney hits Dempsey with the right hand, Dempsey goes down. He's only down for a second, but referee Dave Barry jumps in right away. One. And, and, and Tunney is literally less than a foot from him. He's standing over him, ready to hit him again. He doesn't direct Tunney to a neutral corner. He doesn't, you know, not count. He should have looked directly at Tunney and say, go to the farthest neutral corner and then turn to face Dempsey. He didn't do that. That's what he was supposed to do. And when you watch the film of the fight, Tunney's down for five seconds in round seven before the referee picks up the count. Tunney gets up when the referee's count is nine. The official count is 14. Could, this is the question, this is the controversy. 
This is the controversy that's been going on for 95 years. 95 years, people still discuss this and get into incredible arguments over it. Well-known accredited boxing historians will go crazy over this. Was Tani officially knocked out? Could, the question is, could Tani have risen if the official timekeeper's count was used? So in other words, when the timekeeper got to 10, it would have been five by the time, or it would have been four, I guess, by the time Dave Barry reached the count of nine. And when you look at the tape, Tani's eyes rolled back into his head when he hit the canvas and he doesn't pick up the referee, doesn't look up at the referee or get the count until around eight or nine. I believe, and there are a lot of people that believe this, some still disagree, I believe Tani could not have beaten the count. I think if the referee had followed the official timekeeper's count, Dempsey regains the world heavyweight title. There's no way Tani could have gotten up. Now, years after, for every for the rest of his life, Dempsey said, I think Tani could have gotten up. I was there. You weren't. I was standing not too far from him. I know he could have gotten up. This is Jack Dempsey saying this. So who are we to disagree with him? Now, Dempsey, who's at fault? Is Dempsey at fault or the referee at fault? Dempsey's the architect of his own demise. He got caught up in the moment. He, he, he didn't run to the neutral corner or go immediately, which he should have. But Dave Barry didn't pick up the official timekeeper's count, which he should have. And when he did count, he gave him a slow count. It's really called the long count because it was a count of 14. Some people say it was 17 or 18. The question is this, if Dempsey goes to a neutral corner and, and Barry starts counting, does Tony get up? And I believe he couldn't. But as I was told by the great Hank Kaplan, one of the greatest, if not the greatest boxing historian ever, ifs don't count in boxing. He said, ifs don't count. He said, I want people always see if this happened or if that would happen. He said, yes. And if my grandmother would have had testicles, she would have been my grandfather. Ifs don't count. So the fight made over $2,650,000. It was the last of the $5 million gates of Tex Rickard. And Rickard died two years later. Uh, Dempsey retired after this fight. He had some exhibitions. Two years after this, the Depression hits, and they're all wiped out. Dempsey has no money, but he scrapes together some money and loans, and he opens up his restaurant, and he makes all his money back. And also because he was so well-loved, when Dempsey refereed fights, he people would pay just to see him sometimes rather than the actual fighters. And he got a lot of money for doing that, and he made a lot of money doing various promotions. Gene Tooney had one more fight. He fought Tommy, Tommy Heenan, Tom Heaney, excuse me, from New Zealand, knocked him out in the 11th round, and then he retired. Why did he retire after one fight? He married Polly Lauder, who was an heiress, who was worth over $50 million at that time during the Depression. And he said, I don't need it. I became the heavyweight champion of the world. That's what I wanted to do. I'll always be remembered. And... And, and he was. He was a, a truly 
I never had the privilege, <clears throat> excuse me, of meeting Jack Dempsey or Gene Tunney. But from what I heard from George Chevallo, who also knew, by the way, only the killer Madden, um, that Tunney and Dempsey were just absolute gentlemen. And Tunney and Dempsey became very close friends. In fact, when Gene Tunney's son, John Tunney, was running for Congress, Dempsey would come out and campaign for him. And they asked Tunney's son, how are you drawing 100,000 people? Is it just because your father and Jack Dempsey are appearing? And he said, no, it's because I promised to show their fights after I give my speech. So Dempsey ended up doing well. His restaurant did well. And there's a famous story about Dempsey in the 80s, just before he died. He was mugged by tried, two guys in the 20s tried to mug him. Jack, Jack Dempsey. One guy went for him. Dempsey sort of turned, hit him with the right hand, broke the guy's jaw. And Dempsey was in his 80s. The guy fell down face first. He didn't move. The other guy, just his eyes open, and he tripped over the guy that had fallen, his fellow mugger, and fell down the stairs. Uh, Gene Tunney and Dempsey as I said, were lifelong friends. And they were remembered, and they deserve to be remembered, because my favorite part is Muhammad Ali, but there's never been anyone more enduring in the whole history of boxing than Jack Dempsey. His was a true rags-to-riches story, and so was Gene Tunney. And they were different kinds of men. They both served in World War II. Uh, neither man... They were different than other fighters of the time because neither of them were religious, too religious. But, but more than that, they weren't bigoted. They weren't racist. They looked at everyone as their equal. They were true sportsmen and true gentlemen. In fact, when Harry Greb died during an eye operation, no one cried harder than Gene Tunney. And it was Tunney who went to his funeral and paid for it. And these two men, Dempsey and Tony, Tony and Dempsey, will live forever in the history of boxing. And one of the last things I want to say, if not the last thing, is if you get a chance, watch their fights. I watched them again yesterday. And when I say I watched them, I didn't just watch the second, the seventh round and the second fight. I watched each round of both fights. And it's very interesting because you can see Dempsey thinking. You can see him, how am I going to get inside Tony's reach? And in the first fight, he just can't do it. He's too tired, too exhausted. Figures it out, and the, and the second fight catches magic in a bottle. And then because of his own reticence to obey the rules, which came into effect because of him, he blows his opportunity to come back and become the first man ever to become the world heavyweight champion. But for a lot of people, he is the world heavyweight champion. He always will be, and I firmly believe that. And this is the last thing I want to say, that Floyd Mayweather, Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, Jack Dempsey, Jack Johnson, Jim Jeffries, you still have to address them as champ or champion. It's a title like president. Once you leave office, once a prime minister leaves office, you still address them by that title. And I think it's only fitting and fair to address Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney and all these other wonderful boxers that we've enjoyed over the years and still enjoy as world champion because... They did it through their own sweat and blood and their own effort, and they certainly earned that moniker. And if you haven't seen this fight, as I always say, please go back and watch it. September 22nd, 1927, in Chicago, Soldiers Field. This is an incredibly exciting fight.
My name's Lou Eisen. This has been Ring Talk. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of your weekend.